0: We are in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, if you have your Bible, uh, you want to turn there into verse 18. The one piece of info you should know is that John the Baptist is struggling with faith at this point in his life. He's been imprisoned by the quasi-king of northern Israel, King Herod. Uh, John's in, you know, he's languishing in a prison cell. His days left on earth are very few. He'll get beheaded Uh, very shortly, for having uh, criticized the king's behavior, his sexual immorality. Read in 18, John's disciples told him about all these things, that is, all all the miracles Jesus was doing, and calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now, if we lived at this period of history we would have rarely seen any forms of pictures. You, know, there, you, you never had a copy of a book. I mean, there, there weren't books at that time. There were not photographs at that time. Uh, the, the pictures that we would see would be the occasional uh, painting, a fresco maybe on the wall, or uh, stone tile mosaics on the floor of a, a building that we had entered into, or maybe a carving, um, or coins. Coins. Coins were the only mass medium in the ancient world. The coins were the principal way you would get across a symbolic message to ordinary people. And so just as our coins today have, on one side we have heads, the head of an important figure, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington. And on the other side we have... Symbols of significant uh, places, for instance, Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home in Virginia on the back of the, of the, the old penny, or the great eagle uh, on, the, on the older quarters. Well, when King Herod went to, to print his coins just a few years before Jesus' uh, public ministry at this time, on one side he had his own head, of course, and on the other side he had a Galilean reed. You would see these whole beds of reeds swaying in the breeze on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, the Galilean reed was a sign of of beauty and the the beauty and the fertility of that area and of that region. So you kind of need to know that for verse 24. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the desert to see? A reed swaying by the wind. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in places. So he's saying here, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a king? Well, no. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, that I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. And we kind of unpacked that passage earlier in the Gospel of Luke, that John the Baptist was this forerunner of Jesus Christ, preparing the people for the Messiah. I tell you, he continues verse 28, I tell you, among those who are born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And then this parenthetical statement, verse 29, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. And then verse 31, um, to understand 31, Basically, many of Jesus' contemporaries were criticizing John the Baptist for being too austere, too severe. I mean, he ate locusts and wild honey. He, uh, he was a mountain man. He, he, he's a joyless kind of character. They would criticize John the Baptist for that. But then they turn right around and criticize Jesus for being too much the life and soul of the party. Uh, they would criticize Jesus for being too much of a party animal. And, and he's like, well, what's it going to be? and that 's what he 's saying in thirty one and to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like they 're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, "We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry For John the Baptist came neither eating drink, eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say oh he 's a demon." The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Father, for the words that we have just read. We pray that you would help us to know them and to know you through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So you've got to remember who we are talking about here. This is John the Baptist. I mean, if, it would be kind of the equivalent of, uh, you're, you're talking basketball. And you, who are we talking about? You know, LeBron James. I mean, it, such a you know, big name, big figure, big, just big everything, John the Baptist, the same John who was full of the Holy Spirit from basically infancy, the same John who leapt in his mother Elizabeth's womb when Mary entered into the house, the beginning of the gospel, same John who, at the baptism of Jesus Christ, he heard the audible voice of God, and he saw a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus in the form of a dove. John the Baptist, you know, the greatest, one of the greatest people who has ever lived. You probably see where I'm going with this. Yet when he gets into trouble, and he is suffering, and he is facing execution, and and everything has kind of gone wrong in his life, and he's in chains, he's in a dark place, John the Baptist starts to, to doubt Jesus. Are you really the one? Was I wrong about you? Was I wrong about all of this? And I think that it's very uh, instructive for us, isn't it, that if one of the greatest men who ever lived can have spiritual doubts about Jesus Christ, then I suppose we probably can too. You know, we, we shouldn't be surprised when we do. Uh, we will doubt. We should doubt. Uh, especially when we're going through troubles and sufferings. Now, I, I don't know about this for sure. I think that earlier generations of the church tended to communicate to its members that it is wrong to doubt. Um, No, no, no. You must not. Never. No. Lack of certainty is a lack of faith. Lack of certainty is a moral and spiritual defect. Um, I think some of you grew up most likely in that thought environment where you were taught to avoid doubt or to repress doubt, and whatever you do, just you don't talk about it. What I hope you realize is how just so thoroughly unbiblical that is. Uh, I mean, John the Baptist is one in a long line of biblical figures. and I have, what, Job in mind and Jeremiah, many of the psalmists, and Habakkuk. A long line of biblical pe- people in the Bible who, when they fall into suffering and difficulty, you look at their prayers they are recorded in the Bible, and they're basically saying, like, God, I'm having a really hard time believing in you right now. I'm having a really hard time. In fact, I am in just utter and complete despair. Derek Kidner is a a pretty famous Old Testament scholar who's done a lot of work in the Psalms. Uh, He was commenting on one of the Psalms of Lamentation, actually a couple of the Psalms of Lamentation, such as Psalm 39. If you go and you look later on today, Psalm 39, this is how the Psalm ends, basically. It says, look away from me, God, so I can get a little little bit of comfort before I die. (laughs) That's pretty raw. A a very frank way to speak to God. Or Psalm 88, which basically says, quote, darkness is my only friend and you're not. (laughs) Extremely frank way to talk to to God. And Derek Kickner, as he's commenting on these, he says, the very presence of such prayers in Scripture is a witness that God knows how men feel and speak when they are desperate. The very presence of these inscriptions. God knows what we feel and how we speak when we are desperate. Uh, Friends, what I would say to you is if you have never doubted and never had that kind of like deep frankness of heart and expression, terrible cries of despair, then probably there is something wrong with your faith. Your faith, Because that is the type of faith that the scriptures want us to cultivate. And God says, I understand that the, you would speak this way to me. I, I, I put it in my book for crying out loud. If you, I mean, haven't we all... Um, haven't we all at some point or another just woken up and, and said, like, is any of this real that I believe in? Am I just making all of this stuff in my head? Is Jesus real? Or the, is the God real? Are the scriptures real? Uh, because I'm having a really hard time believing in, in any of it right now. And God says, it's okay. It's okay to do that. He's very understanding with doubts. I mean, you see it here in Jesus' response to John. Jesus does not say to, uh, he does not castigate John. He does not say, after all the revelation I have shared with you, how dare you doubt me? He doesn't do that. He doesn't castigate him for his doubts. Um, But on the other hand, he does not acquiesce to those doubts. No, what does Jesus do? He pushes back against the doubts. And he does so, interestingly enough, with Scripture. So look with me at verse 22. Verse 22, Jesus is replying to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The first thing he does is he gives a loose paraphrase, paraphrastic rendering of Isaiah 35, he says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and then he gives a paraphrastic uh, rendering of Isaiah 61. And the good news is preached to the poor. So he pushes back against John with Isaiah and Isaiah. <laughs> uh, you may remember early on in John's ministry how he prophesied Uh, John came onto the scene, and he prophesied that the Messiah would come, and he would come with a pitchfork in his hand. He didn't call it a pitchfork; he called it a winnowing fork. A winnowing fork is what you would take onto the threshing floor, where you have this big pile of grain that is sitting there. You stick your winnowing fork into the in the pile, you throw it up into the air. The wind would blow the chaff, the useless parts of that off of the grain, and the, gr- the real grain would then settle back onto the threshing floor. That's how you, you sifted, or you, you separated the two. And John predicted that the Messiah would come with a winnowing fork in his hand, and that he would gather his wheat into the barn, while he would also burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And the question, I think, that John was wondering at this point in his life is, where is the winnowing fork? <laughs> Where is the cataclysmic judgment of the wicked and the vindication of the righteous that I had prophesied? I almost wonder if John was was afraid that he might be considered a false prophet because these things were not coming to pass. Uh, whether or not he was thinking that, what I am clear clear of is there is a discrepancy between what John thought the Messiah would be and do and what Jesus the Christ was being and doing where is the winning, winnowing fork in Jesus ministry when you look a little deeper you discover that in fact Jesus was winnowing Israel you say well how is he doing that if i get to put it this way Jesus was winnowing Israel with the winnowing fork of mercy the winnowing fork of mercy by showing mercy to the tax collectors, and the sinners, and the bad people, and the untouchable, Jesus, by inviting them to sit at the table with him and share a meal, Jesus was recreating uh, Israel. He was forming a new community that was centered around himself, and everyone in Israel at that time had an opportunity to respond by faith to the mercy that he was, uh, that was on display. And if they wish, they could participate in this new Israel that he was forming and um, share meals with him and eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. Or they could hold out for the fire and the condemnation that is going to come and consume all the bad people. And the irony being, ultimately, that fire was the fire that consumed them in AD 70 But Jesus is simply replying to John and saying, John, your expectations are off. Your expectations for me are off. Okay, where am I going with this? Here, here's one of the the best exercises that I can think of for a Christian who is going through spiritual doubts and has a lot of why questions. If you're doubting Jesus and you're doubting God, it's to journal, like to get a journal out and to start to record what are my expectations of God for and in this situation? Because you have them, like you have expecta- you have this idea that God should be doing X, God should not be allowing Y, should God sh- should be. There's all these oughts and is and. Uh, And I think, really, the mismatch between our expectations and and reality lies behind a great many of our doubts and confusions um, that we have with God. And so you have to really drill down and write these down and find out, what am I expecting of Him? And one of the ways you also can do that is with why questions. If you drill on your why questions, you'll find out your why questions are just filled with all sorts of expectations. Um, uh, For for instance, uh, imagine the Chinese pastor who this morning woke up to another Sunday in prison, and he is wondering why, after all of his prayers, he remains as John the Baptist before him, languishing in the loneliness of a prison cell in uh, central China. Um, If the trumpets have already sounded, (laughs) and Jesus is risen, and he's at the right hand of the Father, and he is King of kings and Lord of lords, why in the world am I where I'm at. Or even worse, the Sudanese Christian father who wakes up and his wife and his children have been kidnapped by a Muslim militia. If Jesus is the king of kings, then why, and his kingdom has come, then why is the world um, that I'm living in such a hell? Another way that you can discover what your expectations are, are, uh, if you just drill down on the if I were God I would be doing things differently line of thinking haven't we all done it before if I were God things would be way different if I were God so I tried this exercise this week if I were God now if I were God I would make I would make so many more people Christians I mean I would have people becoming Christians left and right every day um, I would do that by dramatically changing all of our lives so that our lives were such a beautiful expression of love that our lives of love would just conclusively prove to the whole world that the gospel is true. I would do that. Um, Why doesn't God do that? Why doesn't... Why when God saves us, doesn't he more fully transform us into uh, holier, more lovely, saved creatures. Why? And John was asking this why question. Why, if I am the herald of the Messiah, a la Malachi 3.1, why am I about to die? Why am I being squashed like a bug? Um, it wasn't supposed to happen this way. And I think that Jesus, in sending this answer back to John, um, this is how God oftentimes works with us. He'll give us an answer, and that answer will lead to its own new set of questions. (laughs) So he sends his answer back to John. John, your expectations of Messiah, they're wrong. Here's what the scriptures say. Um, But there is an implicit uh, part of that answer where Jesus was saying, did you catch this? John, I'm not coming for you. I'm not coming to rescue you. I'm this kind of Messiah, the the Messiah that is healing sick people and making blind people see. I I don't have a commando team unit that is ready to barge up against the doors of King Herod's palace and extricate you alive. I I'm not coming for you. You are you are going to die. Hopefully every one of us agonizes over the why questions because I think the why questions are, are you must do that to have truly authentic fla- faith. Uh, why can't I co- conquer? Why can I why can I not conquer this particular sin in my life after how many times that I prayed for it? Uh, why can I not change this aspect of my personality that I know is terrible for me and everyone around me? Why? Why am I why am I not more like him or more like her in goodness and love and skill? And so, right, you have your journal. You've written, down, you've written down all your expectations. Then what you do, the next step, is you push back against those with Scripture, just like Jesus did. You go back and you look and you see, what does God's word say about each one of these things? Uh, what does he say? Um, and, you know, if you can't do that on your own— then you have a Christian friend help you in that exercise. The only other thing I would say on this is that yeah, you have to remember that we are right now in the middle of our story. Whatever story God is writing with our lives and in this world, we are probably only in the middle chapters of that book, or like in chapter 10 of a 30-page chapter book, or maybe we're in chapter 4 of a 300 chapter I don't, I don't know. What I do know is that whenever you talk to a character in the middle of their story, their perspective is almost always flawed, (laughs) For instance, if you've read The Count of Monte Cristo or seen the movie, you know that it's a story about Edmond Dantes, who endured years of terrible, unjust suffering in prison. And there was an inscription on his cell wall. You remember what it read? It said, God will bring justice. But if you were to interview Edmond Dantes in chapter 10 of the book, halfway through the story, it, it didn't seem like that would ever happen. Yet, as the story goes on, with the help of a friend, he escapes prison, he finds vast wealth, he carries out terrible vengeance against his enemies, which, interestingly enough, he finds to be completely unsatisfying. And at the movies end, um, I can't remember exactly how the book ends, but at the movies end, Edmund and his wife and his son and his best friend are looking over the rocks from the hell hole that he'd been imprisoned in, and all of life all of his life had been redeemed it's a terribly depressing book if not for the ending and in fact almost every great story has a depressing middle <laughs> it's the happy ending that always turns it around and friends if uh, if you are in Jesus Christ like your ending the ending of your story is going to be mind blowing <laughs> it's going to be so happy and it's going to be so good my great desire for All Saints uh, is that we would be a church where doubters would feel welcome. Um, if someone came into our. Our church, if you came into our church today and you're you're doubting fa- uh, matters of faith, you would feel like these people are comfortable with me doing that. In fact, if you were to come to one of our community groups, if somebody from the outside comes to your community group, he or she would hear people wrestling with hard questions of faith, and they would feel like it's okay to be a doubter here, because these people doubt. They clearly doubt. And there's none of that don't, don't ever doubt, don't don't say that. It's completely okay to do so. I mean, there's an important distinction. Doubting is when you're struggling to believe. Unbelief is when you refuse to believe. Um, yeah, and if you're somebody here who's exploring Christianity, um, we want you to doubt, and we want you to wrestle, uh, and we want you to... Uh, Well, I'll say three things. Number one, we want you to doubt your doubts. (laughs) Doubt your doubts too. As one author puts it, our culture tells us pretty much on a daily basis to doubt our beliefs and believe our doubts. There's a time and place to do that, but we also need to doubt our doubts and believe our beliefs. There's a time and place for that as well. Why should we go with the former rather than the latter? You know, the cultural message, have you ever noticed this? The cultural message about doubt is doubt is sophisticated. Um, Skepticism is for the educated and the open-minded and the sophisticated. Faith is kind of for the simpletons and the uneducated. That's very much America's cultural message today. If you're smart, then you're a doubting skeptic. If you're a person of faith, then you're a simpleton. Where does that message come from? Is that like something science came up with? No. Is that objectively objective truth? No. What is that? You know what it is? It's a cultural bias against faith that is woven into the psyche of the Western world. Have you ever noticed that? There is a cultural bias against faith that is woven into the psyche of the Western world, and that's why it's just so much cooler and more sophisticated to be a doubter than, than a believer. You should doubt your doubts. And we've ta- I've talked a lot about that in, on some sermons in the past, especially I, I've said to you, if you are not a believer and you want a good book to read, and we'll make it a free book to read, you go back to our book table and read The Reason for God from Tim Keller, we'll give it to you. And um, so one of the things he says in that book is how all doubts are faith propositions of a different sort. You can't Doubt proposition A without having belief in proposition B. Um, I want to unpack that right now, but but it 's true. <laughs> uh, so doubt your doubts. Number one number two: grow your faith. When John doubted Jesus, um, Jesus told him to grow his faith in the scriptures, to, to plunge more deeply into god 's Word and to learn um, what God has to say there. You know, one of the really tricky things about life is that, and this is the way life works, you have to make a 100% commitment sometimes without having 100% certainty. That's very much how our life works. That happens, doesn't it happen in marriage? Uh, the, the newly married or young couple who's standing up there with me when I am. Um, presiding the ceremony. They may think that they're 100% certain that the other person's right and their life is going to go well together later on, but, but they're really not. They're really not. And yet, they make a 100% commitment until death do us part in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor. At some point, you have to make a commitment that is based on, on trust. And God created human relationships to work that way because that's how our relationship with him is supposed to work. He calls us to trust him as a person, to trust his son as a person, and our, our blessedness will rise or fall in proportion to our trust in him and our trust in his word. So doubt your doubt, grow your faith. And the number three briefly is... Uh, is doubt that Google is God. <laughs> it's a very real phenomena. Like, 3,000 years ago, if you had a question, you would go on a journey to the Oracle of Delphi Delphi, in Greece and have your questions answered by, you know, a, a goddess or a prophetess, etc., 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 I mean, what do you do if you got a question today? Any question, you ask Google. And Google is treated as God. And we believe nearly everything that Google tells us and everything that Google says. And now we go, we actually, now we go to a computer where a century or two centuries ago, we'd actually go to other people and ask the questions. Now we've kind of cut people out of the equation entirely, and we go directly to Google, and we treat Google as the authority. Google is the authority. It it is the higher power. It is the answer to everything. Only, of course, it's not. (laughs) Um, And what I would say to you is relationships among people is a far richer uh, and, and truer pathway to the discovering truth. I'll let you chew on that. Let me conclude by showing you something very, very quickly from verse 28 and verse 23. Will you look at verse 28 there in your bulletin? Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that among those born of women there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now what does Jesus mean here? Well, he's telling us that John is the end of an era, and Jesus and his kingdom is the beginning of a new era. It is better to be a nobody in the new era than the greatest man who ever lived in the old. Imagine if prior to 1913, you ran the most successful horse-drawn carriage business in the United States of America. That'd be great wildly successful until 1913 when Henry Ford creates the Model T, and that's bad for you. With the advent of the automobile, you're now out of business. So we might say in, in a similar kind of way that it would be better to be a line mechanic for Henry Ford than to be the owner and operator of Miller and Sons horse-drawn carriage, not because that wasn't good work to begin with, but because that work is obsolete. And, and now there's... There's great, there's just this new, wonderful, privileged work that we have now here. Like Abraham, Moses, all the prophets, they were preparing in that previous era for the time when Jesus Christ would come. Um, and John was a prophet who was pr- pointing to the people, uh, pointing to the time when Jesus would come. But now you are the people in the new era who know the Christ. And you have the, the blessed privilege of communicating the Christ to the rest of this world. I mean, it's, frank, it's better to be a line mechanic in, in Jesus' church than to be Moses or Aaron or David in the Old Testament. Do you have any idea, like, how great of a privilege you have? It's yours. And in verse 23, he says this profound statement. Blessed is the one, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Blessed is the person who, he's saying in essence, blessed is a person who doesn't get tripped up on the fact that I'm not the Messiah, maybe, that you were expecting. Love how Eugene Peterson concludes it. He said this, relating it back to suffering and trials. Blessed are those followers of Christ who, even when life is hard, even when some of their dreams are crushed, even when the diagnosis is lousy, even when they have more questions than answers, and they live in the fog of confusion and can't chart their way out, blessed are the followers of Christ who do not fall away from God, but articulate those doubts to God, and, you know, press in closer and trust. They trust. They sit. They wait. They know that whatever comes, comes, but it's not the end of the story. They'll be okay. Happy, even. Blessed, even. Because of the settled condition of their heart, to live in reliance and trust on God is, uh, is the best way to live at all. Amen.